I wonder, do you like surprises? I suspect that the uh, sensible answer to that question would be it depends what the surprise <laughs> is. Um, there are different types of surprises, aren't there? There are some that are pleasant and cause you uh, great joy. There are others that are nasty and, and shake you. Uh, they, they knock you for sick. So there are different types of surprises. Others are not necessarily either pleasant or nasty. They're simply unexpected. Um, Richard is in for a surprise now because he thought I was going to be preaching on Christ the Teacher. And in fact, I'm continuing in 1 Peter. I don't know whether that was a pleasant surprise or a nasty <laughs> surprise. I think it's unexpected. Well, I but there are all sorts of surprises. Um, there are some things which really should come as no surprise at all. And this evening, um, Peter's going to tell us about something that should not surprise the believer in Christ. We're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Uh, and Peter says there, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, Peter's returning here to the theme of suffering as a Christian. And I say he's returning because it's something that he's mentioned uh, on, on several occasions in the course of this letter. Uh, he often refers to believers as being strangers and sojourners in the world and uh, as a result of that we'll often face suffering and opposition and persecution. And for us as Christians in this country um, we can say yes to, to that but it's all a bit theoretical isn't it? And in view of what we've been thinking about this evening with the situation in Pakistan, that really comes as a reminder to us that this isn't theoretical. That this is something that our brothers and sisters really do have to face. And we must recognise that we too, although generally speaking we're, we're spared that at the moment, uh, the time could come when we too uh, will have to face such 
opposition, such suffering. So here Peter's emphasising how that's to be viewed so that his readers can cope with it in the right way. And so that we can cope with it in the right way uh, when it comes our way. So from these verses we'll see that the uh, that, that for the Christian, suffering for the sake of Christ, um, in that suffering, well, there's to be no surprise in suffering. There's to be no sadness in suffering. There's to be no shame in suffering. And there's to be no serendipity in suffering. There. It's not often you hear the word serendipity used as a sermon heading, do you? But I couldn't resist maintaining the alliteration. So firstly then, the, um, for the Christian, there is no surprise in suffering. We see there in verse 12 that he addresses his readers as beloved or dear friends. So he's speaking to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking to fellow believers and he says, do not be surprised. Now he's used that word surprise back in verse 4 of chapter 4 uh, when he said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And there he was talking about um, the hostile, unbelieving surrounding culture being surprised at believers for not joining with them in their their godless pursuits why did they find it surprising well Peter went on to say that they were surprised because to them it was as though something strange was happening that they were surprised because it wasn't what they expected they found it strange it made no sense to them and, and they responded by maligning uh, Believers. That's what people tend to do, isn't it? Something they don't understand, that their reaction is to mock, belittle, uh, do down, and so on. And now Peter's saying that believers shouldn't be surprised when that happens, when, when they are on the receiving end of that. He's saying uh, we're not to be surprised when that, that's the way in which people treat us. He wants them to be prepared for when suffering comes, so they won't be surprised. It's a case of forearmed is uh, forewarned is forearmed. He doesn't want them to be overwhelmed by suffering when it comes, and to conclude that God must have abandoned them, God must have forsaken them, to think that God no longer loves them, when the reality is quite the opposite. Um, it's quite quite the opposite. You see, although Peter's clearly speaking of suffering here, notice he doesn't use the word suffering. He refers to it as the fiery trial. Uh, and he goes on to say the purpose of that fiery trial. He says it's to test you. So the picture here is of the refiner's fire, which was used to refine and purify precious metals and to prove its genuineness uh, if you remember Peter had already used that sort of imagery earlier in the letter back in chapter 1 remember chapter 1 all those years ago <laughs> verses 6 to 7 uh, he said in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been 
grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see, sufferings are to be viewed as part of a refining process that reveals and proves the genuineness of our, our faith and it's for our good, it's for our, our help and encouragement. Very much what we were seeing this morning in different terms, isn't it? Where we were thinking about our Father disciplining us because we are sons. And that's not because he's being nasty or vindictive. It's because he is our Father and he loves us and he wants us to grow and develop. Well, it's exactly the same here. These, this suffering, these fiery trials are so that we might be perfected so that we might be so that we might be uh, improved far from being a sign of of God's absence they're actually an indication of his purifying presence and his fatherly love for us so when suffering comes we're not to be surprised as though something strange is happening um you know the surprising thing is that we we suffer so little really in the, the overall scope of the history of the Christian church, we are very fortunate to, to suffer as little as we do. So we're not to be surprised. On the contrary, we see that verse 13 goes on to say, but rejoice. So the next thing we see is that for the Christian, there is no sadness in suffering. Uh, notice the word but at the start of verse 13. That, that proves a very marked contrast, doesn't it? Instead of being surprised by suffering and thinking something strange is happening, we are to rejoice. Now, suffering might not be pleasant, but suffering for Christ's sake uh, should not sadden us. We're to rejoice uh, even in such suffering. That's not to say that we're to rejoice in suffering per se, not, into, in, you know, not to rejoice in suffering itself. Peter isn't encouraging some sort of Christian masochism here. He goes on to give us three good reasons for rejoicing in suffering. Uh, the first one uh, is that we're to rejoice in suffering because it provides evidence of our union with Christ now. You notice Paul qualifies this rejoicing by saying, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. So Peter's talking about sufferings that come about as a result of being a follower of Christ and of living for him. The rejoicing isn't in the sufferings themselves um, indeed in verse 15 he's going to say but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler there's no cause for rejoicing in suffering for any of those reasons is there but Peter says that we're to rejoice in so far as we are being like Christ when you suffer as a, a Christian, 
uh, those sufferings aren't merely your own. They're also Christ's sufferings in that you are suffering for him and you're suffering as he suffered. You're sharing in his sufferings. And that's a cause for rejoicing because it means that you are united with Christ and being united with Christ is of fundamental importance in terms of our salvation and our hope for eternity. As Paul says in Romans 6 verse 5, for if we have been united with him, and that's Christ, uh, in his death, um, sorry, if we have been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then in verse 8 he went on to say, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, our, our hope of, of resurrection life depends on our union with Christ. And suffering for Christ's sake provides evidence of our union with him. So that's the first reason for rejoicing in suffering. It, it's evidence of our union with Christ. Secondly, we're to rejoice in present suffering because it leads us to future glory. Um, continuing in verse 13, we see that Peter says that we're to rejoice in suffering now, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is based, I think, on a, a very clear biblical pattern that present suffering leads to future glory. That, that, that was the pattern for Jesus, wasn't it? Back in, again, chapter 1 of, of 1 Peter, verses 10 to 11, he said, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them would indicate when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, he speaks of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That was the pattern. Suffering first, leading to glory. Christ's suffering led him to glory, and exactly the same pattern is true for believers in Christ. Romans eight sixteen to 17, Paul says there, The Spirit himself bears witness with, with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that what we may also be glorified with him. Our lives follow the same pattern as Christ's lives. Our present suffering with Christ leads us to being glorified with Christ. We're to rejoice in suffering now because it's the precursor to glory. It shows uh, that we're on the way. We're on our way to glory. You notice some, um, the ESV says that we're to rejoice in suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when this glory is revealed. That rejoice and be glad is probably a bit too low-key, really. Um, it doesn't really capture the sense uh, adequately. The NIV is a bit better. It says, so that you may be overjoyed. Um, the Greek text, uh, it literally means rejoice exulting so it's rejoicing plus plus it, it's, 
extreme rejoicing. You know, you get these extreme sports, don't you? It's rejoicing to the limit. It's amazing rejoicing. Extreme rejoicing. The idea is that if we are rejoicing in suffering now, because it's the precursor to glory, then how much greater will our rejoicing be when we enter that glory? It's not saying that we've got that extreme rejoicing now, but we will have. So we we rejoice now, sort of little rejoicing, because we know we're on our way to big rejoicing. So we're going to have that great joy when when we arrive in glory. We can rejoice in suffering now because we know it will lead us to even greater rejoicing later. The third reason for rejoicing in suffering uh, is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit blesses us when we do. There in verse 14, Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now we've seen that we are to rejoice in suffering now, because there's future blessing to look forward to, when our rejoicing will be unbounded. But now he's saying, we're to rejoice in suffering, because when you suffer for Christ's sake, that there's also blessing in the present. That there's, there's blessing for us now, even in, in suffering. He said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Present tense. It might seem strange strange to think that um, that there is blessing in, in, in suffering now. But Jesus said much the same thing to his disciples. Matthew 5.11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, how can there be present blessing in being insulted or suffering in in various ways well peter says it's because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you the the allusion here is to isaiah 11 uh, verses 1 to 2 Uh, that that passage says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now that was a a messianic prophecy in which the Holy Spirit was speaking through Isaiah to say that when the Messiah comes, the spirits of the Lord would rest upon him. Now that was written in the future tense, because when, when Isaiah was speaking, the coming of the Messiah was still in the future. But you see, Peter here, he's changed the tense. I don't know if you've noticed that, but in Peter, it's changed to the present tense. That's because Jesus has come, and the Spirit has rested upon him. And the point is that when believers suffer for Christ's sake, they can rejoice, not only because it... It shows union with Christ and because it leads to future glory, but also because the Holy Spirit rests upon us to bless us, even in our present suffering, and gives a foretaste of the glory to come. So for the Christian, there's no sadness in suffering. Rather, 
there are good reasons to rejoice. Next, uh, for the Christian, there is no shame in suffering. Peter says in verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now clearly, if a Christian was to suffer as a, a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or meddle, meddler, uh, that suffering would be deserved, wouldn't it? If you do those things, you deserve the consequences. So it wouldn't come as a, a surprise. Um, and it should cause sadness. And it should cause shame. But Peter goes on to say, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now it's interesting that Peter... Uh, uses the term Christian there. Um, we're very familiar with the term and we very readily call ourselves Christians, don't we? But in fact, uh, the, the word Christian is only, only occurs on two other occasions in the New Testament. Um, the early believers certainly didn't refer to themselves as Christians. Um, you know, it, it literally means follower of Christ and that certainly seems a very apt description for what we are, but it was actually coined uh, by unbelieving Gentiles in, in Antioch, and it was used as a term of derision. It was a term of abuse. Uh, be, being called a Christian amounted to a, an accusation of being a, an outsider, of being disruptive, of not being socially acceptable. People would look upon a Christian as someone who should be ashamed. But see, Peter's point is that there is no such shame in such suffering if it's because of being a follower of Christ. Um, in Acts 5, we, we have the account there of Peter and the apostles uh, appearing before the council for, for preaching the name of Jesus uh, even though they'd been previously ordered not to do so. And the council was, was annoyed, they were outraged, uh, and wanted to put them to death, because they'd, their words had been, uh, had been disobeyed. But the wise words of, of Gamaliel uh, prevailed, and they were let off with a beating. So they, they avoided being put to death. But nonetheless, that they suffered for their faith, didn't they? That they were beaten uh, because of preaching Christ. But were the apostles ashamed to have suffered in that way? Well, no, they weren't. We read in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. I don't know whether that's the, the name of Christ or the name of Christian. But, but either way, they, 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 they were rejoicing that they'd been worthy of suffering uh, for the name. They rightly felt no shame in, in that suffering. Rather, they rejoiced that they were worthy to be count, that, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. Peter continues by saying, "But let him glorify God in that name." So, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Far from being ashamed, 
own that name. Embrace that name. Live according to that name. Because doing so, Peter says, will glorify God. God is glorified when believers confess the name of Christ and praise his name publicly. The last point is that for the Christian, there is no serendipity in suffering. I I seem to remember there was once a children's television programme called Serendipity. Am I the only one that remembers? No, I'm getting some nods. So those of a certain age uh, remember remember that that, that children's programme. It's probably not a word you've ever heard used before as as the heading uh, in a sermon. Um, but I'm not being quite as ridiculous as it might sound in using it, I'm, although I confess it was to ma- maintain the alliteration. But I do think it's, a, it's an appropriate word uh, nevertheless. Um, you see, the word serendipity, it means something like chance, um, coincidence, uh, an accident. And in verses 17 to 19, uh, we read, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, And if the righteous is, is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while while doing good the idea here is that there is no chance uh, associated with our uh, any suffering that might come our way that it might seem a fairly puzzling uh, few few sentences here but if you dig into it we'll find that it shows us that when we suffer as Christians it doesn't happen by chance it's not an unfortunate coincidence it doesn't happen by accident you'll notice uh, that verse 17 begins with the word for um, it's reminiscent of Chris this morning here isn't it but begins with the, the word for that tells us that Peter is going to give us a reason for not being surprised but rather to rejoice when suffering as a Christian so suffering isn't a meaningless happenstance there's a reason for it and then he says, it is time. Again, that suggests purpose, doesn't it? It suggests a plan. It suggests a design. Uh, it's reminiscent, perhaps, of, of Galatians 4. In verses 4 and 5, um, Paul said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Nothing random about Jesus coming when he did. He came at the right time. He came at the appointed time, according to God's plan and purpose. So the idea here is that that the time has come for something to happen as planned. Time for what? Well, Peter says, for judgment to begin at the household of God. So the suffering Peter's been talking about is some sort of judgment. And he says that it begins at the household of God. Now, 
what do you understand by household of God? Uh, the, the Greek word here is oikos, uh, and it literally means house. So Peter's saying it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. In the Old Testament, the house of God invariably refers to the temple. But what did Peter mean when he mentioned the house of God? Well, he's already mentioned the house of God. He's used exactly that same word, oikos, um, back in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Uh, where he said, as you come to him, Christ again, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual oikos, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So their oikos is rightly translated as house. Um, Peter's not thinking of an earthly temple here. Rather, what he's got in mind is a a spiritual building constructed from what he refers to as living stones, by by which he means people who have received new life in Christ. That's the church. That's us. That's believers in Christ. I think that's confirmed because Peter then goes on to say, and... If it begins with us, that, that's the house of God, it's us. So when Peter says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, he means that judgment begins with the church. Judgment begins with us. Now, this is getting a bit, bit weird, isn't it, in some ways? Um, it might come as something as a surprise, because so far we've seen that there's There's no sadness, uh, there's no shame in suffering. But if that suffering is actually judgment, well, wouldn't that be cause for sadness? Wouldn't that be cause for shame? We're we're being judged and yet to rejoice in it. Uh, Being judged and, and yet rejoicing in it and not being ashamed. Well, it seems quite a difficult conundrum to unravel, doesn't it? I think the difficulty arises because when you see that word judgment, you tend to find yourself thinking in terms of the final judgment. You think in terms of condemnation. But the Greek word that's been used here is a broader term, uh, and it could be taken to mean something like assessment or appraisal. And as such, it could have... uh, it could have one of two outcomes, couldn't it? An assessment or an appraisal. It could be a positive outcome. could be a, a negative outcome. No doubt most of you here have experienced annual appraisals at work. Um, I wonder if the, when the new... Uh, those in employment's prayer group uh, meet together, if they'll be sharing their assessments with one another and praying for one another. I'll never know because I'm, I'm no longer in employment. But you, you'll know the sort of thing. Um, and If you've been performing well, then you have nothing to fear from your appraisal, do you? If, if you've been working well, then there will be a good, uh, a good outcome. And you've got every reason to be encouraged uh, and pleased. 
um, if you've not been working well, well then there might well be a degree of sadness and a, a degree of, of shame uh, associated with it. But either way, if it's done properly, that the purpose of the appraisal isn't to try and find reasons to criticise you uh, or condemn you, the idea, I know it doesn't always work out this way in practice, but in principle, the idea is that it, it will help you to, to improve. It will help you to develop. It will help you to make progress. So the idea is that it's time for God to start assessing or appraising us. That there's nothing random about that. That there's a purpose in it. And the purpose is to encourage our growth and our development. And that was the idea we saw uh, that Peter had in mind when he referred to our, our sufferings uh, as fiery trials. It's the same sort of idea again. You notice next that this assessment will begin at the household of God. So the implication is that it won't end there. You know, it begins with us. But we're not the only ones that are going to be assessed. Uh, again, um, you have a clear sense of purpose rather than random chance. You've got a, a defined process going on here. Peter continues, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Of course, the gospel of God there, it's, it's the good news. That, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross in order to save sinners who trust in him. Uh, there's a contrast here, isn't there, between those who obey the gospel, those who trust in Christ for salvation, and those who do not obey the gospel. And if you're a believer in Christ, well, you don't need to fear the assessment that begins with the house of God, because although it might uncover some uncomfortable truths, it might be painful, but you won't face condemnation because, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the question that follows, however, that's another matter, isn't it? Peter goes on to ask, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, uh, Peter doesn't state the answer, but the point is that the judgment that begins with the house of God, well, ultimately, it leads to the final judgment. And the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God will be that not only will they be judged, but that judgment will result in condemnation. It will result in punishment. Peter lends support to that statement uh, by going on to allude to Proverbs 11.31. He says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I'm not going to spend much time considering the detail of that, but I just want to comment on that phrase, scarcely saved. Um, it gives the impression, doesn't it, that believers are, if you like, barely saved. You're saved by, by the skin of your teeth. It, it's touch and go. That, that's the sort of idea that you could very easily get. It's a close one thing. Um, the NIV has, if it is hard for the righteous, hard for the righteous to be saved, 
which again could give a similar sort of impression. And of course the reality is that thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus, our salvation is gloriously assured. We, we have complete confidence in him to save us. There's no, there's no scarcely about it, is there? The fact is that the, the Greek word that's being used here, um, although it can mean scarcely, it, it does have that, that sense on occasions, uh, but it can also mean with difficulty. Uh, and given the context, I, I think it's with difficulty. That's, that's the better option. And the difficulty that, that Peter has in mind is surely the suffering that we have to endure as God refines and purifies us in bringing us to final salvation. It's not suggesting that there's any uncertainty about our salvation, but it's recognising that we will face hardships along the way. It's recognising the fact that the Christian life is difficult. Verse 19 then begins with, Therefore, so Peter's now drawing a conclusion from what he's been saying. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer. So he's drawing that conclusion on behalf of those who suffer. And he specifically refers to them as being those who suffer according to God's will. Now I think we've already picked up on a number of indications that there is no, no serendipity about our suffering. It's, it's not by chance. We've seen, we've seen purpose and design in it already, haven't we? But now he's making it abundantly clear. When you suffer as a Christian, be assured that it is according to God's will. He has a purpose in it, so it's not random. It isn't bad fortune. Peter is really saying that if you suffer for the sake of Christ, in view of what I've been saying, this is what you should conclude. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Be surprised? No. Be saddened? No. Be ashamed? No. He says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it's a, a twofold response that, that we should have to suffering in the knowledge that this is all part of God's will and purpose for us. Firstly, those who suffer according to God's will are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Uh, the NIV has commit themselves. Now the idea is not simply of, of trusting God, it, it's, it's more than that. The Greek word that's been translated as entrust or commit, it means to hand over something of value to the care of another for safekeeping. Now there's something of value here, it is their souls, your souls, our souls. I know the, the, the NIV has themselves, which is quite inadequate. The, um, the Greek word is souls. That, that's, that's a correct translation. And I think that's significant. We're not to entrust our bodies to be delivered from suffering. We're to entrust our souls so that we can endure suffering and benefit from it. Who do we entrust our souls to? Peter says a faithful creator. And that his faithful tells us that he is trustworthy. If you're going to entrust something to someone, you want to do it with someone who's trustworthy, don't you? You'd be a fool to, to entrust yourself, 
your soul or, or anything else to someone that you can't, you know, is a bit dodgy. Well, God's not a bit dodgy. He's absolutely trustworthy. You, you can trust him with something as valuable as your soul. You can count on him to keep his promises, to remain true to his character and to do what is best for your soul. That he's the creator tells us that he has the power and the ability to keep your soul. He made, made the universe. He made you. He made your soul. He, he's the one who can keep your soul. Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You have nothing more valuable than your soul. So be sure uh, to obey the gospel and entrust your soul to him. But then secondly, we see that those who suffer according to God's will are to be doing good. Peter's previously spoken of, of suffering for doing good, hasn't he? And perverse as it might sound, the world around us often makes us suffer precisely because of our goodness. Well, Peter's point here is that because of our, because our suffering is according to God's will, we're not to allow suffering to make us stop doing good. We're not to say, I do good, the world responds badly and makes me suffer, therefore I stop doing good. No, the logic is, this is all according to God's will. The world might not like it, but I'm going to carry on doing good. Our understanding of the suffering that God allows should make us resolve to continue in doing good. And our motive in doing good, well, it's not to receive plaudits from men. If you want that, you probably won't get them. Uh, it's not to have an easy life, as we've seen. We've got a life of suffering. Uh, doing good in this world isn't going to give us an easy life. Our motive is to obey God and bring glory to his name. So we've seen that where, where suffering as a Christian is concerned, well, there's to be no surprise in that. Uh, there's to be no sadness in that. There's to be no shame in that. And that is because there's no serendipity in that. Uh, our God is in control and he's working out all things for good. So let's, um, as I said before, we don't suffer anything like as much as many of our brothers and sisters do. But the time could well come. And uh, we need to be forewarned and forearmed. Hopefully that's, that will help us to respond in the right way.